Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Katherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law, Group and Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding and Conflict. And I'm on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And I am thrilled that my guest today is Chris Voss. Chris is the CEO and founder of the Black Swan Group, and he's the author of the best-selling book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It. And that book came out of his 24-year tenure at the FBI, where he was trained in the art of negotiation, not only by the FBI, but by Scotland Yard and Harvard Law School. And I could go on and on, Chris, with your accolades and awards, but welcome to the show. It's a really pleasure to have you. Catherine, thank you very much. It's great being on with you. Thank you. And you might be wondering, like, why would I ask you on the show that's about divorce negotiation? I guess you're an expert in negotiation of all kinds, but when you really sort of found your legs as a hostage negotiator, do you have any questions about that? Or, you know, is it obvious to you as it is to me? No, I think so. There's a lot to be said about dignity. And the focus of what you're talking about is engaging in this contentious, difficult emotional process and retaining everybody's dignity. And that's what we were always into. Yeah, I think that's really true. And, you know, a lot of times people come into a divorce negotiation and they think it's the same as doing a business deal. And it's not the same as doing a business deal because it's not a deal you can walk away from, similar to a hostage negotiation. Sometimes people feel held hostage in their marriages, feel the need to get out of them. And there is no not dealing with that. You got to deal with it one way or the other. Right, exactly right. You got to work your way through it. You know, uh, you got to go through the Red Sea. You can't go around it, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. Whereas, it, you know, it's a business deal. You could say, yeah, you know what? I'll get find a different supplier. I'll find a different employee. I'll find something different somewhere else. You can't do that in either of these situations. And oftentimes, the clients that I have had who do deals for a living say this was by far and above the hardest deal I've ever done because I feel so personally involved. And and how did you deal with that, Chris Voss, as a hostage negotiator? or, you know, about the personal involvement of the people and yourself. You know, it's crazy how much farther we can get when we start respecting the other person's point of view without agreeing with it. I mean, there's such a relief from the other side in all aspects of our life. And so that hostage negotiation, I'm just trying to make the other person feel completely heard. Sounds trite. But it's where most of the progress is made, just getting an appreciation of how effective that process is. You know, I really want to emphasize that because I think that respecting the other person's point of view and letting them know that you do, right? It's not just that you do. It's that you reflect back to them, your understanding of their perspective is incredibly powerful. And yet sometimes people think that's weak. Why is that? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things that, depending upon what side that we're on, it's a vastly different experience. And oftentimes, things that seem weak to us when we do them, the other side sees it instead as you being accountable. I heard a politician recently make this statement that I was kind of blown away. He said, I wasn't responsible for how this happened, but I am accountable for it. And there's just such relief from the other side. And you say, hey, look, you know, I don't know whether or not I was responsible, but I will be accountable for it. And it really goes a long way. 
Yeah, and I think that combined possibly without judgment. Now, of course, yeah, you know, right, without the expression of judgment with it, because that negates the person's dignity and negates their sort of their presence and their perspective, and no, there's nothing to negotiate with them from their view. Is that right? Yeah, no, a thousand percent, and that, that tiny little difference, which we make a point of emphasizing it over and over again. Like when you express the other person's perspective, don't do it with any denials or any disagreements. Drop those out. No denials, no disagreements. Just lay it out there. And that's exactly what you said, without judgment. Right, because otherwise it sounds like, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, yeah, I see what you're saying, but you're wrong. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> you know, my, my son's my director of operations, actually chief of operations these days, and uh, Brandon Boss. He's got a great phrase on this. He says, nobody wants you to put your butt in their face. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. And that does negate it. And it's like, all right, you know, I can do this sort of fake compassion, fake understanding, but I don't yeah. agree with you. And I think you're wrong and possibly evil, too. And to, <laughs> <laughs> so do you yeah. think that it is fake compassion when you understand another person's perspective and demonstrate that? You know, as long, as long as you don't claim that you're supportive of it and they know that you're not necessarily supportive of it. People want to feel heard. If I want to feel heard. It's not that I want to feel that you agree with me. I want to feel heard. And no, it's not fake compassion if you separate those two things out. I've stumbled over some reading on empathy recently, and it goes way back farther than I thought. Sort of the origin of the word, the etymology of it. I'm, I'm into that stuff sometimes. Because I kind of limited my thinking. I know it as far back as Carl Rogers from the 1970s. And they said, empathy is a transmission of information, compassion and sympathy, the reactions to the information. So you can transmit the information without reacting to it. To me, that distinction makes a lot of sense. You know, and I think when you do that, it really helps not only your own understanding of the other person's perspective, but it often helps them understand themselves better. Do you agree with that? A thousand percent. I mean, I think, and that's what Rogers was getting at when he brought this back to us as a concept. Yeah, and it's really funny because sometimes people come into negotiation, at least in my office, and let me know if you think this is true, if you see this differently, and they ask for something. This is my demand, right? It's X. And then you really start to ask them why X. Again, without judgment, not like why would you want that, but, you know, really exploring it with them and sort of why they want it, what it does for them, what's sort of behind it. And it turns out, well, maybe it's not X, maybe it's Y, or, you know, it's X modified or something like that. Their own expansion of their understanding of themselves in the dialogue allows them to shift to a place where they look for something that maybe you can give something that you couldn't give their original demand. Yeah, you know, and so many demands are a reaction to somebody. What, what they really want is emotional compensation, and which means that whatever they demanded is going to be inadequate. Right, because it's not what they wanted. The right, I want a, exactly. right, I want a million dollars, but I really want to feel like you value me. And the million dollars yeah. doesn't necessarily make them feel like you value them. It was just a way that they had of sort of representing value. Well, a million is a lot, so <laughs> that would mean a lot. Right. Yeah, one, one of my guys actually coached a woman through a divorce negotiation recently. They're gone because all of us in my company coach. And Derek's a former hostage negotiator as well. And he laid out the husband was not the breadwinner, the wife was the breadwinner. And she knew that she she was obligated by law to pay him thirty five grand. She was willing to go to fifty. He's asking for a half a mil. 
Mm-hmm. The strategy at the table was basically provide emotional compensation at the table by articulating everything that the other side was upset about. And they settled for 34000 Yeah. Because he got enough emotional satisfaction at the table. The demand of half a million dropped all the way down to $34,000 because he felt hurt. Yeah. And, and he got what he really came for and that he was symbolizing with the, with the dollars. Exactly. Exactly. You're listening to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30, or perhaps you're listening on the podcast, which is available at divorcedialogues.com, as well as on iTunes and SoundCloud. And I'm talking today with Chris Voss, the author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It, about negotiation and divorce and otherwise. And Chris Voss, you know, one thing that I love about something that you talk about in your book is sort of, you know, what you call the F word, fair. don't drop the f-bomb on me yeah and so why is fair the f-word it comes up in almost every negotiation number one and number two people drop it when we're getting defensive when we feel we're getting gouged and then it's the subtlest shot back at the other side because if you say something like i just want what's fair you're automatically calling the other accusing the other person of being unfair And it comes in such a subtle way and it hits our emotional structure and people overreact every time. I mean, it's, it's, it's so inflammatory and at least half of the time it's dropped in a really innocent way. A really shrewd negotiator, you know, they'll say, Hey, you know, I made a fair proposition. It's the same thing. It's a cheap shot that sort of gets behind our armor and it causes us to question ourselves. The, re- the really shrewd negotiators drop it all the time because they know how much they can manipulate you with it and you don't even know that you were manipulated. I think that's a really good point. And, and another point about it that I find is fair according to what? You know, <laughs> right? Exactly. Like according, I mean, it's because, you know, usually people come in, at least to a divorce negotiation, most people, and really most, saying that feeling like, and the studies show that this is a very important emotional component to feel that they got treated fairly, that this was a fair deal, right? right? But both people want what's fair, but there's no Venn diagram there in terms of terms based on what? Based on your own emotional reality, based on the law, based on, you know, what God would see it to be. I mean, based on what? And so I think that, you know, when people say to me, well, what do you think is fair if I have a client or if I have people in mediation? And I'm like, well, don't ask me because what I think is fair is really dictated a lot by New York state law. That's what I do. But that's not necessarily how you would see it. You know, it's not the same thing. But does that make sense to you in terms of fair by what standard? Yeah, well, uh, complete sense. And then when you take a look at, you know, what they do, they call prospect theory, we don't have the ability to actually assess fairness on our own and we'll never be satisfied with fairness because Daniel Kahneman Amos Tversky said that as human beings a loss is going to sting twice as much as a gain which means every time you lose something you will overreact you can't help yourself so you're never going to see anything as fair because you're always going to be overreacting yeah I think that's a really good point So let me ask you another question. And so imagine somebody came in and asked you to coach them through their divorce and say it's a woman and she says, you know, my husband's a bully. Can you deal with a bully? What's your answer to that question? Yeah, of course you can. (laughs) (laughs) So how? Now, the real issue there is, can I equip you to deal with a bully? Um, How open are you going to be to coaching? How hard is it going to be 
for us to, you know, get what's getting in your way under control. That's going to be the issue. Because a bully at the end of the day is a coward. Cowards fear driven. And the predator is a hard one to deal with. A predator and a bully are two different animals. But, you know, a bully is, is you know, their, their emotions are out there. I mean, they're scared. Fear is the dominating force. And, you know, we can dial down their fears without too much trouble. Hostage negotiators do it all the time. It's kind of a ground ball. It's simple, but it's not easy. The, the formula is really simple. It's just that we get in our way when we try to apply the tactics. Well, so one thing that I think a bully does a lot is call people out in an environment and in a frame that they can win at. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right? Like, so yep. it's physical or it's financial or that they set the game, the rules of the game, and then they seek to compete in that framework. You know, so at least I never feel like you can out-bully a bully. you got to change the rules of the game. You know, and yeah. what, what do you think about that? Well, yeah. And when I was working in international kidnappings, these are by definition of bullies. I mean, these are people that are trying to get what they want by exactly what you said, setting the rules of the game principally with fear and intimidation. And they're going to feel like if they can engage in that. You know, our basic phrase was the secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. Right. And how do you do that? A deference. I mean, I love the power of deference. Um, a bully wants to get into a fight, wants you to fight back. All right, cool. I'm not going to play that game. I'll be deferential. It's going to knock the bullies off the game right away. To be fearlessly deferential is one of the fastest ways to, to start taking a bully out of the game because you're not fighting back and they don't know what to do because most of the time when somebody doesn't fight back, they give in. You're not fighting back and you're not giving in. That's really perplexing for them. It exactly. It really takes them out of their game. So what's the difference between a bully and a predator? A predator is going to be much more under control. They're a lot harder to rattle is the biggest thing. I mean, you know, there's an analogy I saw a long time ago. A house cat, common house cat in the kitchen. Dog comes in and starts barking and the cat. Cat backs into a corner and it's hissing and its back is up. You're not going to reach down and pick up that cat because you don't know for sure what it's going to do. It's fear-driven. It's all over the place, and it's dangerous. Same house cat out in the yard stalking a bird. Now the cat's in predatory mode. If you see your cat out stalking a bird, you come up behind the cat, you pick it up, and he's going to be startled, but he's not going to bite you because they're actually completely calm when they're in that predatory mode. And so a predator is pretty calm, and a bully's fear-driven. If you start from those two different premises, you begin to see the difference in how they behave and how to approach it. I think that's a really helpful description of the two forms, and it really does help make a difference. This is Catherine Miller. I'm talking today with Chris Voss on Dialogue on Divorce. Chris is the author of Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. And he's an expertly trained negotiator by profession and, and certainly in the life that you've led, Chris. If people are interested in learning more about your book or about your consulting group, the Black Swan Group, how can they get in contact with you or learn more? You know, the best way is to subscribe to our newsletter. It's a complimentary and it's a gateway to all of our training. We've got this great text-to-sign-up function set up. So if you text to the number 22828, and that's 22828, send a message, FBI Empathy, all one word. Don't let your spell check put a space between FBI and Empathy. FBI Empathy, all one word. Send as a text to 22828. You get a text box back. You 
you get signed up for the newsletter, and it's the gateway to everything we do. That's perfect. So let me ask you this, Chris Voss. Do you think men or women make better negotiators? Well, we see women picking this style of negotiation up faster than men do. Now, at the top speed, it's really hard for us to distinguish, you know, who's better. You know, there are aspects of genders and types that we all need. I actually think women that pick this up get really, really, really formidable. I mean, they do some incredible things. Who's better at it to begin with? There's a couple of other things that go to nurture and upbringing that may or may not come with gender, but we think women pick this up faster than men do. What do you think is the primary paradigm shift that new people coming to learn this style need to make in their lives, if you can generalize? Probably whether or not you're bent out of shape over control. If you're bent out of shape over control, you don't want to listen to the other side. You don't let them go first. You miss a lot of information. You're scared of words. You're scared of fairness. You're scared of no. I mean, you're taking yourself hostage in so many different ways. And if you can give yourself just a little more latitude and not be control-oriented, then you can really start to progress really fast. Is there some advice that you have for people who, because I think that's true whether or not you are the sort of negotiation facilitator or a party to the negotiation, you understand what I'm talking about and the difference, Yep. right? Yep. So do you think that there's something, we have a listener out there who's thinking about their own situation, like, wow, that'd be great if I could let go of control and also still get what I need, right? Is there something right. to think about differently that can help people think about that? Yeah, you know, genuinely hear the other side out first. Some of that is, you know, shut up, let them talk, encourage them to talk. If you can get over that barrier, you probably make a quantum leap forward in your negotiations. You know, Stephen Covey said something like that in, in The Seven Habits. He said, seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. Something exactly. like that? Yeah. And then you go from add a word and demonstrate that you understand. Yeah, I think that really makes a huge difference. You know, another thing that I really liked about your book and these are my words, so hopefully you'll know what I'm talking about. But you really make a distinction, I think, between the what of the negotiation and the how of the negotiation. Does that make sense to you? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, We're on the same sheet of music. Right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about keeping two perspectives of the what and the how and, you know, and also the why as part of the negotiation? Why would you want to do that? Well, how is basically how do I approach this? I'm going to approach it with deference because there's great power in deference. I'm going to approach it with genuine understanding and genuine demonstration of understanding because it's going to get me a long way. It's going to build our relationship. And I'm going to approach this regardless. One of the differences between me and, and the Harvard guys, you know, they'd say, all right, let's talk about how we're going to engage in a process and then engage in a process. And I remember thinking like, look, you can talk about how you want to do it all day long. I'm not coming out of an emotional intelligence approach, and I don't need to get you to give me permission to use deference. I'm going to use it regardless. So I think there's some fundamental approaches you should take because they're tried and true, and they increase your chances of success. Now we can get into the what. What are we going to talk about? What do we really want? What are you really trying to get out of this? And then we'll talk about implementation. 
So are you saying that the difference between you and the Harvard guys is that they're having an explicit how conversation that everybody would agrees to before you get into the what, but you are just integrating the two things and thinking, I know that deference works as an example. I know that active listening, reflective listening works. So I'm going to do that. I'm not going to ask your permission to do it as part of our initial conversation. Right. Exactly. I mean, the Harvard approach is a very intellectually sound approach. What's wrong with that? We're not intellectually sound. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, if, if you get computers that at the end of the day, every single question the computer asks, is it yes or is it no? On or off? You know, it's a binary structure. We're never going to get out of that. And that's why the computers can't drive cars. Because human beings are irrational and we consequently we cope with the rationality on a regular basis. And it's no big deal to us once we accept that, that, you know, people around us are going to be emotional. Yeah. I'm thinking to myself, well, we should get Bob Manukin on and we could do another show about this. That's really fascinating. Um, Bob Manukin is a brilliant guy. He would be a great guest. Yeah, he is a brilliant guy. Well, I'd love to have you both together. I'll make a note. So let me ask you, let me ask you this. When you say in the, the title of the book, never split the difference, you know, splitting the difference is, you know, another way to say compromise, right? Right. And it's a way that a lot of people think that negotiations are supposed to go. So what's wrong with right. that, Chris Voss? What's wrong with splitting I, the difference? I came across one of those Lockhorns cartoons, you know, a husband and wife cartoon from, and it's, I think they're from like the 1970s or something, but they're so true. And so the cartoon somebody gave to me, the husband's talk to the wife. He says, let's compromise. That way we'll both be unhappy. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? And matrimonial lawyers say very commonly that a good deal is one that both parties are equally unhappy with. So that yeah, seems wrong to me. But so I'm asking you, what, what do you think about that? Yeah. Well, I don't think it's unrealistic for us to work out a deal where both sides are happy. Why don't we take the extra few steps to find out what it's going to take to make the other side instead of guaranteeing unhappiness, regardless of the outcome. That's what compromise is, guaranteeing unhappiness. Logically, it makes sense. Intellectually, it makes sense. But let's get back to what we talked about, Kahneman. Uh, lost things twice as much as an equivalent gain. If we start to compromise, we're now in a death spiral of unhappiness. And that unhappiness is never going to go away. If, um, By definition, if I give you something that's worth five dollars to you five dollars face value it's going to feel like ten dollars to me for for me to and i'm going to want to get even so i gotta i gotta double that that's why it's a death spiral i mean it just doesn't work one of my favorite negotiations is negotiation between a husband and wife over whether or not to get a real or an artificial tree <laughs> where's the compromise there right yeah there is no compromise there or, or if you're going to compromise, this year we get a real tree, next year we get an art, you know, whatever that nonsense is. They get into, deep into the conversation, and a husband's telling me about this, writing about it, and, and I love it because she ends up taking the wife's position a thousand percent. He wants a real tree for practical reasons. She wants, or he wants an artificial tree for practical reasons. She says, I've got such great memories about how close my family was that are on yeah. the holidays. It's triggered by the smell of the tree. Well, Chris Foss, we're out of time. I think that's a great example. Thank you so much for being our guest on Dialogue on Divorce. I really appreciate it. <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs>